Do you struggle with sin? I think everybody here right now can say yes. You don't have to think very long about that one, right? If you're thinking about that one for too long, let me give you the answer. The answer is yes. We all still struggle with sin, don't we? I'll, I'll be the first to admit it. I still struggle with sin. But I was told that when I put my faith and trust in Christ, when I recognized that I was a slave to sin, that I was a sinner, that I had rebelled against God, and because of that I deserved death, but God, being gracious in his love and mercy for me, came and paid the price for my rebellion, for my sin, I was told that when I put my faith in him, I would be free from sin. I would no longer be a, a slave to sin, but I would be alive in Christ. So the question is, why do I still struggle with sin? I hear Christians ask that all the time, and it is a valid question. Why do you still struggle with sin? A lot of theologians would give you the answer that it is because of the here, but not yet. And that's just a, a, a simple statement to, to explain a big theology. And that big theology is, on the cross, Christ was victorious over sin. On the cross, Christ was victorious over sin and death. And we can be free from sin, meaning we're no longer enslaved to sin, and yet he has not begun to reign. So Christ is victorious, and yet he hasn't consummated his victory. Meaning he has not started to control, or I should say, he has not started to lord his victory over the earth, meaning there will still be a struggle with sin. But when he consummates his victory, when he begins to reign, when he starts to, to use his ruling power over the earth, there will be no more struggle with sin. But that day hasn't come yet, so we still struggle with sin. But that doesn't mean that God isn't victorious, and that doesn't mean that you're not free from sin. It just means that he hasn't started to reign yet. So he is victorious, but there are still battles going on. And though we are free from sin, we still struggle with sin, though he grows us in his grace. And as you submit to him more and more, you will struggle with sin less and less. I kind of think of it as... Uh, as like a war story. So there, there is some confusion in war, and especially uh, throughout the centuries when communication was difficult. There was a lot of confusion, and sometimes when, when one side would win and they'd sign peace treaties and there was a victory, battles would still go on. The battle over New Orleans is one of the famous ones, right? The War of 1812, the peace treaty had been signed, and yet... There was still a battle fought over New Orleans. Another one of my favorites, I'm going to actually read to you a little excerpt from uh, Mental Floss magazine. If you're not familiar with Mental Floss, it's just a magazine with a bunch of obscure facts, so I love it. Uh, but this one comes from Mental Floss, and it's all about uh, battles that continued on after a war was won. And this one, it starts off with, Hiro Onada's orders were clear to protect the Philippine island of Lubang from enemy attack and not to surrender under any circumstances. All right, so we've got Hiro Onoda. He is working for, or sorry, he is a Japanese soldier, and he's given clear orders. Do not surrender under any circumstance. 
He followed these orders diligently, and he was still doing so 29 years after World War II ended. Think about that. 29 years dedicated to continuing fighting for Japan after they had lost. Onada and three other soldiers survived and refused to surrender to an Allied occupation of the island beginning in 1945. And they hid in the mountains for the next three decades, engaging in guerrilla activities with local officials. Immediately after the war's conclusion, and again in 1952, leaflets were airdropped over the mountains to let Onada's men know that the war was over. But they concluded that the news was an allied trick and refused to capitulate. Could you imagine this? The war is over. Forces have now occupied the, uh, the island. They're dropping leaflets, and he's like, nope, that's just propaganda. That's not true. I was given strict orders. I will not give up this island. So he continues on. In 1974, after Onada's three comrades had either surrendered or been killed, and Onada himself was presumed dead, a Japanese college student backpacked through the area and discovered Onada. Still skeptical and loyal to his orders, Onada refused to surrender until his former commanding officer issued the command. Major Yoshimi Tanaguchi, who was currently working as a bookseller, flew to the Philippines and formally relieved Onada of duty. That is crazy, right? Can you imagine the dedication this guy had? But the victory was won. He was fighting for a lost cause. We see that still to this day when it comes to the spiritual battle. Jesus won the victory on the cross. The only difference between Onada and Satan is Satan's forces know they've lost. They know they don't have the victory. Onada was just ignorant. He didn't believe, he thought it was propaganda. Satan knows he's lost the victory, that he cannot have victory, and yet he will continue to fight, and he will continue to look to destroy. But the victory is already here, yet Christ is not reigning. And that's what we're going to study today as we continue our study in hope-filled, a study through Revelation. So once again, we call it hopeful because Revelation should give us hope. We should know that although there is pain here on this world, that there can even be horrible tribulation. In the end, God is victorious. And that should give us hope. If there was no God, if there was no God and this life was it, in all honesty, then it doesn't matter what type of lifestyle you live, there really is no hope. In the end, there's really no hope. You've got 80 years, hopefully 80 years, on this earth. If there is a God, and he is victorious, then those 80 years, no matter what the circumstances are, can be lived in hope. No matter if you live in poverty or wealth, you can live in hope. Because you know that there is a God who loves you and cares for you and is victorious in the end. 
But if there is no God, then what's the point of it all? What's the purpose of it all? I forget the CEO's name, but there was a CEO that made a controversy recently. He's a part owner of the Golden State Warriors. And in an interview, he was asked about the genocide that is occurring in China right now. And his response was, I don't care. That was it. I don't care. Why should I care? It doesn't affect me at all. Actually, what's happening with them is kind of nice for me because, you know, they, they produce products for me very cheaply and I can sell them and make money off of this. So it doesn't bother me at all. That's the result we get with no God. Because without God, there is no hope, so why shouldn't we just live a selfish life? And if you can live in comfort, why not just live in comfort until the day you die? But if you can't live in comfort, why not just get high and die? Because there's no purpose and there's no hope. But with God, there is hope and there is purpose. And we know in the end, God is victorious. And that should fill our hearts with hope no matter what happens. As you look around, you might be discouraged politically. Where's your hope? Things might get more discouraging politically. Where's your hope? And I say that to refocus in on this is where our hope is. We know that God exists, and in the end, no matter what happens in our short lifetime here, he is victorious. So turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 11. So we've been walking through Revelation. If you're not familiar, it's four visions. We're into the second vision. The first vision John is given, he writes letters to seven different churches. The second vision, he is caught up into heaven, and he gets a special revelation of heaven. So in chapter 4, we get a glimpse of the throne room of heaven, and then he's given what's going to happen in the future. So this, this is future events that are going to occur, have not occurred yet, but they will occur. So he's getting, given the, the throne room of heaven vision, and then there's this scroll that un, unveils the... Uh, end times, so he's going to teach us all about these end times, but first they can't be opened because there's seven seals. These seven seals, the only one that can open it to show us what's going to happen at the end is Jesus. He begins to break open the seals, and man's depravity is revealed. After man's depravity is revealed, the saints cry out to God for justice, and then justice starts to come. There is silence between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. And, and, sorry, we get an interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. There's an interlude. It draws us deeper in. It shows us what's happening to the believers during that time. Then when the seventh seal is open, there is silence for half an hour in heaven. And that's to reveal to us or to show us what is happening in that situation, how powerful what is happening is. And within that seventh seal, there are seven trumpets. We start to look at the seven trumpets. The seven trumpets begin God's judgment on mankind. And the first four trumpets are, are supernatural events that occur in such a way that they could only be explained by supernatural occurrences. No one can, can write it off as like, well, that was just an earthquake. Well, that was just 
you know, the sun just positioned itself just right, and there was a radio magnetic impulse from the sun that made all of this happen. No one's going to be able to describe it away as natural events. It is supernatural. Man has no excuse other than God has done it. So we see man's depravity. Man is absolutely wicked throughout the seals. Then we're going to see God supernaturally interacting with the work with the world. So man has a sight of who God is. And then the sixth, or sorry, the fifth and sixth trumpets are what's called woes. These woes, God releases hell on earth, literally. He releases demons from heaven, and the demons torment mankind so much so that they beg to die. And actually, their begging for die is one last way of shaking their fist at God, saying, in death I will still have control over my life. And God says, no, I have control here. I am sovereign here. So man is without excuse. They see their depravity. They see the power of God through these supernatural events. And then they get a taste of hell. And God is doing this all in his mercy to say, look, this is where you're heading. This is how bad things are going to be. If you think this is horrible and you're begging for death now, you haven't seen anything yet. Eternity separated from God is going to be so much worse. That's what he's driving at here. All to drive about repentance. And then, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, we enter into a new interlude. And in this interlude, we get to see, uh, once again, he's drawing us deeper into the vision, and we get to see things happening from the believer's perspective. So, John's giving a measuring rod, and he's told to measure out the temple, showing God's ownership and protection over the temple and of God's people. And then we get this description of two witnesses. This is where we were last week. The two witnesses have an assignment. And the fact that they are two is really important because in Old Testament law, in order to prove something in court, you needed two witnesses. One witness wouldn't cut it. So God delivers two witnesses. Once again, we see God delivering this message of, look at your own wickedness. It's very clear that you are wicked. Look at my power. It's very clear that God is, is creator of all. And then look at hell. This is what you're facing. Then he delivers these two witnesses to, to, to uh, show the world the message. So that by the end of all of this, no one is going to be without excuse. There's not going to be any single person out there who was like, I just didn't read the fine print. You know that little button that you always click that said you agreed to the terms and conditions? No one's going to be able to say, well, I didn't actually read that. I just clicked the button. God's going to make it so evident of what's going on. No one's going to be able to do that. And so they have the assignment, and that assignment is to be witnesses on God's behalf. And God is going to equip them for this assignment, and he will then they will have to depend upon the Holy Spirit during this assignment, and the results will be trusted to God. So those are the four main points that we can get from these witnesses. They have an assignment. They're going to be equipped for the assignment. They will be dependent upon the Holy Spirit, and they leave the results to God. These two witnesses are a prototype for the church today. Now, we're not going to be equipped like they are. None of us have the ability to breathe fire from our mouths. At least I don't think anyone here does. If you do, please let me know. Uh, but we're not going to be equipped the same way that those witnesses are equipped. But God has an assignment for you in your life. 
And he will equip you for that assignment. And in order to fulfill that assignment, you need to depend upon the Holy Spirit. And then remember, the results are up to God, not up to you. He will take care of the results. So we see these two witnesses, and that's where we pick up today in verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was open, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and heavy hail. All right, let's jump in here. So the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven. So we've got, this isn't exactly what we expected, right? Uh, in the last one, when the seventh seal was broken, what did we have? We had a half hour of silence, just showing us the magnitude of the event this half hour of silence, and we, when we went through that, we talked about, you know, oftentimes when we want to be somber and observe something, we give like a minute of silence, right? And oftentimes we even get uncomfortable with that minute of silence, don't we? Sometimes we'll start fidgeting, like, come on, that minute is a long minute. A half hour of silence showing us that this event is a somber moment, it's a moment with great magnitude that God is going to release his judgment upon the world. It's not something to take lightly, but that's not what happens here. And this isn't what is expected in the interlude or the seventh trumpet. It's also greatly contrasted with the second and, or the first and second woes. Remember, demons are actually released upon the earth. They're stinging humans with their tails. Humans are like begging for death. This is horrible. That's not what happens here. In this seventh angel blew his trumpet, there were loud voices in heaven. So that's happening in heaven. So we saw with the two witnesses last week that there was this focus in on earth. Now we're looking back up at heaven. And he's showing us the connection still between the interlude and what's happening on earth. So what's happening on earth is still occurring this is going to be a, a woe. The seventh trumpet is still going to be a woe. There will be absolute, uh, it's going to be absolutely horrible. The seven bowls of God's wrath will actually be poured out in the third woe, in the seventh trumpet. We'll get to that. It's actually going to take us a while to get to that because we're, this interlude is going to be so long. But he wants, us to re, he wants to remind us that what's happening on earth is still connected with what's happening in heaven. But he's giving us this interlude, and he's, he's connecting it with the trumpet so that we can connect the dots as well. So the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices. Now, this is the first time that he gives us this just general loud voices. In the past, he's described these loud voices, or who is, who is making the noises here? 
But here he actually doesn't give us the description, and I think it's because he wants us to focus in on what they're saying, not who's doing the saying. So let's see what they're saying. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So the kingdom of the world is a way of saying the system that operates in rebellion against God. There, we, we've seen other ways that he's said this throughout Revelation. There's the earth dwellers. But it's all about those who are rebelling against God. There is the earth's or the kingdom's system. And the kingdom's system is a one that is in rebellion against God. We see this all the time. People want to be their own God, and the only reason why they even want to acknowledge a God is if, in, if by chance, he might be able to help me out. You know, uh, Christians, we do this all the time too, where we say, God, I love you because you can do something for me. Instead of saying, God, you are the creator of the world, and I need to live in submission to you. But the operation of the world system is, I want to be my own God. I want to be the one that calls the shots. And that is in rebellion against God. It's to not recognize him as the creator. And it is a morally subjective system. The world system morality will always be changing. And they might say something like, well, it's out of love. But, you know, as we saw with that CEO, it's not really out of love. You don't care about what's happening in China. You don't care about the genocide. You just care about yourself. And you use love as a way to justify your selfishness. So a world that operates outside of God is a world that is morally subjective, meaning the mo your morals will constantly change. There is nothing to root you or to ground you to any type of morality. And with that in mind, then there is nothing that is truly moral. It only depends on the context. So we could talk about sexuality a little bit. Some people think where we're going sex with sexuality is kind of crazy, off the rails. And it started all the way back with no-fault divorce. We didn't think very much of no-fault divorce. But it started undermining sexuality. So it hasn't taken, in the world's history, it hasn't taken us very long to get where we are today with sexuality. And when we say that you can be defined by your sexuality, and that you should choose a sexuality that makes you happy, we're really lining things up to say anything goes sexually. So you might be able to argue for a certain type of sexuality that goes against biblical sexuality. But then where do you draw the line? There's no rationale for drawing the line anywhere unless you're rooted with a moral authority that is objective, unless you're rooted with a moral authority that is rooted in God. Then there is no reason 
to draw a line. And we will see that line being pushed all the more. You can expect it to happen. Be prepared for it to happen. So the kingdom of the world is a kingdom that operates in rebellion against God. It is a morally subjective and ever morally changing operating system. But this kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ is the operating is the, is the kingdom that operates in submission to God, that operates in submission to God's objective moral authority. It's one that recognizes God and says, you are the creator, we are the creation, we will submit ourselves to you. So it is a system that operates out of submission to God. The two cannot coexist. The two operating systems cannot coexist. You are either in rebellion against God or you are acting in submission to God. Now, some people think that they're pretty good people, and they might be pretty good people, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're operating out of a system that is submitting to God. They can still be a pretty good person that's operating out of the world's moral or the world's operating system. So if you think about it like this, uh, I was raised with certain cultural values, correct? Right now, our cultural values reflect a Christian value. The reason why you have the values that you have, if you haven't submitted to the biblical worldview, is because of the Christian influence in your life. There are plenty of other cultures that don't have that value. There are plenty of other cultures that don't share your same values. So if you think cheating on your wife is against or is wrong, that's because you're holding to a Christian biblical value system. If you think beating children and enslaving them is wrong, that's because you're adhering to a biblical Christian value system. And you might hold on to that, not even realizing that you're being influenced by God's objective moral authority. But that doesn't mean that you necessarily want to submit to God as the objective moral authority. You see what I'm saying? So you can actually be a pretty good person and follow the rules and say, it's wrong to cheat on your wife. It's not, not okay to beat your kids. You better take care of your family. It's good to give money. And not even realize that although you're being a good person, it's not because you are submitting to God. It's simply because you're following, a diff you're following the cultural value system that God has handed forth. But you're still doing it out of a selfish reason. Because you want to be a good person. I don't like to, if I'm being honest with you guys, I don't like to be thought of as a bad person. Anybody, I'm curious. I think there are some people out there that are like, I want to be a bad guy. Most people don't want to be thought of as a bad guy. So we operate within the cultural value system that we have. But we do it because we want to be seen as righteous in the culture's eyes. So you see how even if you're a good person, you're still doing it out of your own want, desire to be God, to be seen as someone that's good? 
That's different than saying, whether I'm seen as good or not, I'm still going to submit to God's word. There will come a time, especially as we become more and more secular, there will come a time when you have to ask the question, Am I, do I want to be seen as a good person according to secular world standards, or do I want to live by God's word? There will come a time when you have to answer that question. That question will reveal, are you living really by the kingdom of the world or by the kingdom of our Lord? The two cannot coexist. So, the kingdom of the world, this is what they're saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. So, essentially, God is bring, ushering in his kingdom. He is beginning to bring in that reign. So, he's victorious on the cross. He's going to start to reign here. And so that's what they're praising God all about. The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ is emphasizing the oneness of God. That it is both God the, God the Father and God the Son that are ushering in this kingdom. And we see that again when he says, and he shall reign. Meaning Christ was victorious on the cross. He is going to bring his throne and his authority and his sovereignty to earth. And it is both he and God the Father that is represented in he. So we see the oneness of God there. He shall reign forever and ever. So we see that the victory is on the cross, and yet he is bringing or consummating his victory to the world. He is bringing his authority, his sovereignty to the world, and he's going to reign forever and ever, emphasizing his eternity. God will reign forever and let's take a moment to think about how short our lives are. I used to bring out a rope that represented eternity. It would go on forever, and we'd, we'd get this little sliver here. And one day I was, I was doing that, and I was preaching on how short our lives is. And I mentioned, we get, maybe we will get 80 years. And I didn't know it, but we had a senior saint sitting in the congregation that day that was like, I'm 80. He made it. He made that 80. We celebrated later on with some cake. He didn't make it to 81. And we miss him. Larry was even talking today, since we were missing Jen, that it would have been great to have Jack here today. He was a drummer. But we know where he is because he put his faith and trust in Christ. 80 years is a short time. And I'm talking to you right now, teenagers. You think that it is long. You think, man, I just remember being 15, and that year between 15 and 16, wanting my driver's license felt like eternity. It'll be gone in a blink of an eye. I go to visit one of our senior saints uh, fairly often. He's 86. He used to come here every Sunday, and then COVID hit, and then he started getting some some health problems, so he doesn't come anymore, so I try to visit him, and every time I go to visit him, he, he reminds me, Aaron, it's over so fast. 86 years, and it's gone. You have very little life here. Reading Revelation should help inspire us to make it count, because there is an eternity. And what you do here matters. It's a short time, but it matters God has an assignment for you. Are you going to live out that assignment or are you going to waste your life? It's such a small life. It's such a short life. 
but he will reign forever. And we get to have that victory in eternity with him. So he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders, you remember all the way back in chapter 4, we saw that was the introduction to the 24 elders. That was in the throne room. So we see again that he's in the throne room. And this is what he's bookending this. So he is, he's saying he brought up the 24 elders there. We're seeing the 24 elders again. And it's a bookend. So what he, he's saying that this is the, con, he's completed the three and a half years. If you remember, the tribulation is going to last seven years in the future. This is the first three and a half years that have been bookended by these 24 elders. So the next section, I think, is going to be the next three and a half. That's called the Great Tribulation. So it's the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces, and worshipped God. Now, I kind of chuckle a little bit as I read that because worship, the term worship means to prostrate yourself. And it eventually developed to mean to sing praises to God. And we'll explain that in a second. But So whenever I read that, I think, and they fell on their faces, and they fell on their faces, and, and God, you know? So, but, but it's so important that we read this correctly, because to fall on their face, why, do you fall, why did they fall on their face? It's an act of submission to say, God, I submit myself to you. You are creator, I am the creation. I no longer want to call the shots, I am looking towards you. So that's why they fall on their faces, and that's actually how the term worship developed. Because worship originally meant to fall on your face, to prostrate yourself out in front of God, to say, God, you call the shots, I don't. That's what worship really, truly is. It's an act of submission. And eventually we started to learn that praising God helps us to develop that act of submission. And it's so important for us as we gather to worship God on Sundays, as we gather to praise him on Sundays, it's not just an emotional thing. If the only reason you come to sing is for an emotional reaction, you're doing it for the wrong purpose. The reason why we sing praises to God is to remind ourselves that our life should be lived in submission to him. Singing praise as an act of worship is a way to remind ourselves, God, we need to submit to you. You are the creator. We are the creation. We submit our lives to you. You call the shots. We don't. That's why we worship. That's what they're doing here. So they're, they're falling on their faces and they're worshiping. They're acting out of submission to their creator, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. So this term Lord means to be a master over something. So they're saying, we give thanks to you. Master, God is the creator and sovereign over all, and Almighty is all-powerful. So you could say it's like this. We give thanks to you, master, creator and sovereign, and all-powerful. It's a great way to remind ourselves of who God is. It's easy to, to rumble off, Lord God Almighty. It's important for us to remember who we are speaking to, who we are submitting to. It's our master. He's our creator. He's the one that's sovereign over us. And he is all-powerful. Who is and who was. Now, if you'll notice, we've seen this phrase before a couple times, but it's missing something. Do you know what it's missing? And who is to come, who is and who was and who 
is to come. Who is, is emphasizing his sovereignty right now. That he is God right now. Who was, emphasizes for eternity past, he's sovereign. And who is to come, emphasizes the future aspect. There's a reason why he's left out the who is to come. Because it's happening now. In this vision, it's happening now. That's the future. And in the future, God will reign. He will consummate his victory and he will, be, he will reign in the future. So they're leaving out who is to come. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And see, we see it there. The reason why the is to come is left out because he has begun to reign. He has begun to assert his victory that he had on the cross. So he has victory now. We can have victory over sin. At that point, he will assert his victory into the earth. And what happens when he inserts his victory, or asserts his victory, I should say? The nations raged, but your wrath came. So he's contrasting two different uh, rages here. The rage of the nations, the nations are simply unbelievers. Those who have not put their faith and trust in God. And they rage because they are the earth dwellers. They are those who operate out of the kingdom of this world, who have the operating system that is in rebellion. So they're mad. They rage against God because they want to be their own God. They rage out of rebellion. They're still shaking their fist at God, saying, forget you. I want to be the one that calls the shots. I I want to be the one that can judge whether my morality is correct or not. I want to be the one, God, not you. That is why they are raging. But your wrath has come. God, God's wrath reveals his love for his creation. That's why God has wrath. James 1.20 says, uh, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. God's anger does. So your anger and my anger doesn't produce righteousness. Oftentimes, there's some kind of self-righteous anger involved. God's anger is righteous, and it reveals his justice. And it is because of his love that he has anger. So when I was a, a kid, we, it was a snow day. We went out and played in the snow for a little while. We built some snowmen. We got cold, so we went inside and warmed up. As we were warming up, a friend from down the road came down the street. He came to our house, and he wanted us to come back outside and play. We didn't want to because we were cold. So he was trying to figure out how to get us to come outside to play with him. And eventually he realized that if he destroyed our snowmen, we'd have to come back outside and build snowmen again. Now my brother, I love him, uh, he is kind of an intense person, and he's... He's emotionally intense. So when he's like, when he loves you, he just like lavishes that love, right? But when he was angry, and especially as a kid who hadn't matured yet, man, that wrath came out. So he loved his new creation, the snowman. My neighbor friend did not realize the intense love my brother had for this snowman. So when he pushed that snowman over, My brother went running outside, didn't care about any of his snow gear, went running outside and started dropping fists on his face. He cared about that snowman. 
So he wanted to bring justice. Now, then he felt bad about beating his friend up, so he ended up creating the whole new snowman, and the story goes on. God is so much, so much more loving and so much more justice and righteous-oriented than my brother, especially my childhood brother. He ca- his justice and his wrath come because of his love. Too often we emphasize his love and we de-emphasize his justice and we de-emphasize his wrath. But the whole reason why he has wrath, why he has justice, is because of his love. Think about it for a second. Think in your mind the person you love the most right now. Think about parents your children. Children, think about the parent that you love the most. Just kidding. What would happen? How would you feel if someone broke into your house and right in front of your eyes tortured them? And then you say, man, no big deal. That would reveal you didn't actually love them, right? That would reveal you don't actually care about this person. It is because you love them that you would be angry. It is because you love them that you would want to see justice. If you didn't love them, you wouldn't care. Just like that CEO who doesn't care about what's happening in China. He doesn't love them. He has no moral root, so it affects him not at all. God's wrath it reveals his love, and his wrath is coming. So the nations, they rage because of their rebellion. God's wrath comes because of his love. So there's a time, his wrath has come, and the time for the dead to be judged. So his wrath is coming, the dead are going to be judged. The dead are those not found in Christ. It doesn't mean all those who are dead at that time. It just simply means those who are not found in Christ. So when you put your faith and trust in Christ, Christ took you from being dead in your trespasses and sins and made, him, made you alive together with him. So to, be say, to say that you are in Christ means that you have put your faith and trust in Christ. And when God looks at you, he no longer sees someone who is full of sin. He sees his own son, and he sees the righteousness of his son in you. So you are no longer dead. So you won't be the ones that's being judged here. And the time for the dead to be judged. So there's, three, there's a couple things that it's time for. It's time for his wrath. It's time for the dead to be judged. And it's time for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name. Servants here is doulos. It means to be a slave, or better yet, indentured servant. So it is someone who said, you know what? I'm not doing a great job of handling my life. I'm going to sell myself into slavery. And they might do that for several different reasons. Sometimes people sold themselves into slavery just so that their family could eat. But the whole point is, it was their choice. To sell themselves into slavery and say, you are my master. And that's what he's saying, he's referring to here. That there will be a reward for those of us who said, look God, I don't do a great job with my own moral structure. My morality constantly changes with what I desire. I know I make a mess of things. I sin. I rebel against you. I mess up. So I'm no longer going to be the master of my life. I'm going to give my life to you, God, and you will be my master. And those who do that will be rewarded. So that's a generic term. The rest are just descriptions of those who are slaves. Prophets are mouthpieces of God, so those who are mouthpieces. 
Uh, a saint is someone who is holy. Uh, the Greek term here is hagias, and it means to be holy or morally pure. Oftentimes, as Christians, we look back at all of our sin, and we don't think we're morally pure. We don't feel like we're holy. But you are holy. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, He made you holy. You're not holy because of anything you've done. And that's so important to understand. But you are holy. God has made you holy. God has made you a saint. And those who fear your name, those who are in awe of you, both great and small, so it's going to be everyone, everyone who has put their faith and trust in Christ will be rewarded. So it's time to judge those who are dead in their sin still. It's time to reward those who are your slaves. And then it's also time to destroy the destroyers of the earth. For destroying the destroyers of the earth. There's a little bit of wordplay going on here that I think is kind of cool. The, word, the root word for destroying and destroyer is dafneo. Dafneiro, sorry. Dafneiro. And it means, to it can be defined as destroy, but it also can be defined as morally corrupting. So what we've got here is it's time to destroy those who are morally corrupting your creation, the earth. So it's those who are still operating under the earth's system, those who are still operating in rebellion against God, who are taking God's creation and corrupting it. This includes satanic forces as well as those who are non-believers who are still in rebellion. They will face destruction. That is the song the 24 elders begin to sing. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And this represents God's presence coming. It represents Christ coming to assert his reign on the earth. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. The ark of the covenant the, the covenant was made at Mount Sinai, and it revealed his mercy. God made a covenant with Israel to reveal his mercy, and it was to remind them of his presence. In the first temple, the covenant was to be held behind a veil. That veil was eventually torn at the death of Christ, and that was significant because it showed us that there is no longer something in between us and God, but that we can have total access to him and that he and his presence is here with us. You can live your life in victory with the presence of God here. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and heavy hell. We've seen this before, and this is, a sim uh, this is symbolic of his power. But there is one thing that's added to this, and that's the heavy hail. And that's symbolic of judgment. So we see God's mercy and we see God's judgment. And even in his judgment, there is mercy, which we saw revealed throughout the seals and the trumpet because it's all pushing these people to repentance because God knows eternity without him is going to be far worse than what he's putting them through right there. There is mercy in God's judgment even then. There is mercy in God's judgment. God has revealed his presence. Jesus was victorious on the cross, 
and he will begin to reign. Hiro Onada's orders were clear. And he was sticking to those orders, even though the Allied vic were victorious. For 29 years, he ignored leaflets. He thought they were just propaganda. Christ was victorious on the cross. His victory we can share in today. And he will insert, assert, his reign, his victory on this earth. There are those who will ignore his victory. Are you still operating out of the world's system in rebellion against God, pretending like he wasn't victorious? Are you going to ignore when he begins to reign on earth? Or are you ready to say, God, I no longer want to be the master. I no longer am going to be God of my life. I'm done with my moral subjectivity, and I am ready to submit to you and put my faith and trust in you. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your victory that we can share in today. That we no longer have to be slaves to sin. And even if we do struggle with sin, we recognize that you continue to mature us and grow us as saints, as holy people, that you have made us holy. And we pray for those who are operating out of the world system that they would come to a place of, or of repentance. That we would all see you as our Lord, God Almighty, who is master of our lives. In your name we pray.